Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to welcome everyone to episode number nine of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back, as always, a man that went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. How you doing, John? I'm doing well, Tim. Uh, show number nine. Wow. It, it goes pretty quick, doesn't it? Yeah, we've been uh, doing this show, I mean, uh, nine months or so. And it's uh, this one in particular, I was really looking forward to reviewing because it was pretty significant and some pretty cool things happened on this garden show. Absolutely. And uh, you're in a great mood, I know, because your Mets are doing well. The Mets are in first place. Uh, they have a six game lead as the day we're taping this. So that could change by the time this airs, but, uh, uh, I really have a good feeling about this team. They're really reminiscent of the, uh, 2000 team. Uh, they're not the swaggering, um, uh, guys that they were on the 86 team, but the 2000 team really liked each other. Uh, this team loves each other. They got a great manager in Buck Showalter and the team has been doing great. Max Scherzer has been almost lights out every time he only has one loss uh and uh it's it's kind of cool to see uh see this year unfolding the way it is and i've been waiting for something like this for a very long time so i hope they keep it up and you have your other podcast what are you two to three episodes in on the new podcast uh on the uh fanagers uh that is the uh podcast that i do with Stu stone out of toronto canada and a guy out of san antonio named john gibbons who's a former manager of the toronto blue Jays. so we're up to episode five on that podcast and so great things are happening for John, uh, getting ready to finish his book. I mean, uh, Greg Oliver's writing his uh, memoir. That book will be going to press, and it won't come out till opening day of 2023. But that's an exciting thing uh, to be able to get John a book deal and uh, and have his whole – he's a, life, a baseball lifer. So uh, lots of good things happening with Gibby, lots of good things happening with the Mets and in pro wrestling. 
pro wrestling is pro wrestling. Yep. <laughs> uh, just a different era right now. Uh, but this is a show that I really take joy in recording as I do my other wrestling podcasts as well. So I look forward to today's episode. And on this show, May 22nd, 1972, a couple of really cool things on the podcast. First, a very unusual match into a tag team title offense, something I've never seen before, which we're going to talk about. And also, a very special guest that will be joining us on the show for the main event, which is Pedro Morales, the WWF heavyweight champion, putting his title on the line against the eighth wonder of the world. No, not that eighth wonder. The eighth wonder of the world, Pampero Furpo. Pampero Furpo! Way! And Whoa! Oh, yeah! There you go. And uh, Mr. Furpo's daughter, Mary, is going to join us, and she'll talk about her dad and also uh, him wrestling at the Garden, which I think will be pretty cool. And we have another special guest, Chimu, the shrunken head that Pampero took to the ring. And, and that just leads me into our next thing. Where can you see Chimu, the shrunken head? Where can you see it? Well, you can see it on our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash John Rizzi. We're doing a few cool new things to the Patreon, and one of my favorite things we're doing to the Patreon is we're doing an episode folder. So when we talk about something on this podcast, you can go to the Patreon at patreon.com slash John Rizzi and find what we were talking about, and this is one of those things. Yeah, this will be one of those things, and we found some rare 8 millimeter footage of Pampero Furpo uh, in his, uh, one of his early garden appearances, uh, I believe it was from early 72. And it looked like it was Tony Altamore, but I don't know for sure. I got to look at it again. It's uh, some footage that I obtained. Uh, it's not footage that I shot, but that's going to be up there. And also there's such a wide array of stuff that Mary has been sending us, uh, and, and I mean, clippings and art, newspaper articles uh, and the program from the garden from this particular night. So there's going to be a lot of cool stuff on that Patreon account. Uh, and there'll be, uh, uh, as Tim was saying, uh, when this show was uploaded to Patreon, there'll be a um, there'll be attachments. And in those attachments, there'll be photographs, the eight millimeter stuff. And it's going to be really cool for you to reminisce. Uh, because this was a this was a night that uh, Furpo was in the main event against Pedro Morales, and it was a good build up for him. So lots of good things, and on the Patreon account, lots of good things happening. I actually uh, scanned and uploaded uh, one of my Freddie Blassie uh, newsletters from 1974. Uh, so there's 22 pages of that. Uh, I had just come back from Atlanta, Georgia, where I won Fan Club of the Year in 1974 from the WFIA, the Wrestling Fans International Association. That's up on Patreon. And uh, just uh, my my newsletters that I did in 1992. Uh, so there's a, there's a bunch of new stuff on Patreon. And, of course, there's over 200 items up there, 200 downloads from videos, photo sets, 8-millimeter films, uh, the entire Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show archives from uh, 1989 uh, right through May of uh, 1992. We have college shows up there. So much to really appreciate. If you're a wrestling historian, a fan of wrestling history, that's the place to go. Patreon.com slash John Arezzi. $5 gets you in uh, at our lowest tier. And then there are other tiers uh, based on what your budget is that can give you all of the stuff that I mentioned. Plus, I even mail out vintage wrestling magazines to our patrons, depending on the tier they're in. Exactly. And, you know, the companion piece that I love so much about the Patreon, we're going to add a special something special we're talking about today's show. And it's not about Pimpero Furpo. It's about another match. And you're going to add it later on. And we'll explain that later on in the show. 
Ah, yes, we'll get to that one. That was kind of a historic thing for me. Today's show is May 22nd, 1972. We have a tag team title change today at the Garden. You know, a lot of people don't know the history of the WWWF tag team title, so John and I want to go over it real quick with you, give you a little idea of, of where it came from and how it started. The first tag team title for the WWWF was in March 7th, 1963. It was in Washington, D.C., Buddy Austin and the great Scott were the first holders of the WWWF tag team titles. And, and a funny, a little interesting story that Richie put in here for us. Austin and Scott, both of them tag team title holders, and the former WWWF heavyweight champion, Ivan Koloff. All three men are not in the WWE Hall of Fame. Why do you think that is when you got someone like Abdul the Butcher, John, who never even wrestled for McMahon? He's in the Hall of Fame. Well, look at all the entertainers that are in the Hall of Fame and the WWE Hall of Fame, and they have no right to be there. I don't know about Scott and Buddy Austin. I mean, those guys, even though they were the first WWF tag team champions, I don't know if that warrants a Hall of Fame uh, induction. Ivan Koloff is a different story. Ivan Koloff beat Bruno Sammartino on January 18, 1971 to win the world's title. Ivan Koloff was a mainstay in the WWF. He is a historic figure. He's a legacy uh, wrestler in that uh, around the world, but especially in the WWF. I mean, that's where he had uh, an enormous success. And I think there has to be some type of personal issue for him not being in that Hall of Fame. He should be there. And fans have talked about it for years, why Koloff is not in the Hall of Fame, but they still don't put him in there. And I wish I knew the real answer why. Yeah, it's kind of unusual when you have someone who who is such an influence uh, on the early WWWF days, heavyweight championship days, with Bruno not being in the Hall of Fame. Well, let, let's get back to the tag team title. So we had um, uh, Austin and Scott ha winning the title in March 1963, and they had it for what? Probably, what do you think, about nine weeks or so, John? Uh, yeah, about nine weeks. And then uh, on May 16th, 1963, and I believe that was could have been the day before Bruno won the title from Buddy Rogers. Didn't he win the title on May 17th, 1963? Uh, so Washington, D.C. was where this title change took place. Skull Murphy and Bernard won the titles. And uh, Washington was a place where a lot of the titles changed hands uh, because that's where they taped their TV. And now we're going to go six months later, again in Washington, D.C., Killer Kowalski and Gorilla Monsoon won the title February 14th, 1963, D.C., again, because they do TV in D.C., and that's the best place, I guess, to do the title change. Yes, uh, that is very true. But six weeks after that, it seems like uh, uh, there's a lot of sixes in these title changes. But uh, six weeks later, the tag team, the brother tag team of John and Chris Tolis won the titles December 28th, 1963 in Teaneck, New Jersey. So that had to be a house show uh, title switch. Now, John Tolis, I remember seeing him in the UWF. That's where I remembered him from. Yeah, John Tolis, the legacy. I mean, he, he his feud with Freddie Blassie in the 1970s, was uh, early 70s, was massive. He was the America's champion. One of my all-time favorite wrestlers, the Golden Greek, John Tolis. The only way to spell wrestling is T-O-L-O-S. And he also had a run against uh, Bruno Sammartino. He came in for a uh, when Bruno uh, recaptured the title. Uh, Tolis came in, I believe it was in July of '74, and uh, he he fought uh, Sammartino, and he also had a, a match against Victor Rivera. The same night, Bruno won the title, December 10th, 1973. But Tolis has always been one of my all-time favorites. I got to know him, got to meet him, and when he was with Herb Abrams in the early '90s with the UWF and 
what a great guy. What a great talker. What a great, one of the best promo guys in the entire history of the pro wrestling business. Uh, he's not with us any longer, but uh, I would have to say he's in my top five of all-time favorite uh, wrestlers. Now, when he was with the UWF, he was a manager. Why do you yes. think he never was a manager in the WWF? Or he the... was. He was. They stole him from the UWF, and they called him the coach. And he wasn't allowed to talk. He didn't do any promos. And that was kind of his... That was kind of his, you know, his claim to fame was how great he was on the promos. And he came in to manage uh, some tag teams. Uh, I don't know if he was with Kurt Henning or not for a bit. He might have oh, been. Wow. Um, but it and he was not there long. You know, they took him from Herb. That was kind of a way to say, all right, we're going to just get this guy. And Tolis took the bait and went in there. But he wasn't happy in the WWF and he and he wasn't there long. Wow. No, I never, I don't remember ever watching, but it makes sense, you know, like, because he was so good in the UWF. He was one of the main, it was one of the main great things about the UWF well, he was, was John Tullis. He was a great talker and, and man of some great people. But the, the best angle that he ever did was with Freddie Blassie. Blassie was being interviewed at ringside at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles and told us they called it Monsell's Powder. He took a handful of this Monsell's powder and he threw it in Blassie's eyes, blinding Fred. That caused such a animosity and the fans were going crazy. They wound up doing the blow off of that feud at the Los Angeles Coliseum, which was the biggest wrestling show. It took place in August of 71, I believe it was. And it was uh, in the Coliseum. They didn't draw 100,000 people, but they drew about 22,000 people at that outdoor venue but that was a huge show that was the largest gate in los angeles up until the point where um uh we did our triple a show there in 1993 wow well john and chris tullis tag team champions december 28th 1963 how long do they have it for probably six not six months six <laughs> weeks uh they lost the tag team titles to don mccleary and argentina apollo this one in new haven connecticut on february 16th 1964 yes and just shy of five months later june the 6th 1964 the good doctor dr jerry graham and his brother crazy luke graham won the titles and that was in washington dc and then you go about eight months later. So the titles seem to be changing either six weeks or eight to six to eight months. It really depends on who's holding the titles. So Dr. Jerry Graham and Crazy Luke Graham had the titles for eight months before they lost them to Gene Kanitsky and Waldo Von Erich on February 4th, 1965. Again, in Washington, D.C. I don't know who Waldo Von Erich is. Was he Fritz's brother? Uh, it was kind of a kayfabe brother situation for a bit, uh, but he really became prominent in the WWWF. And he had, uh, even when Bruno recaptured the title, Waldo came in managed by uh, the great Freddie Blassie. And they had some battles at Madison Square Garden, some really, really bad battles. And 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 uh, Von Erich played the part of the evil German, uh, and uh, his gimmick was a little stale. Uh, but he was very believable uh, as a brawler, as a wrestler, and uh, uh, it was a mainstay for a bit in the WWWF, and then later the WWF. Interesting. Did he use the claw hold also? Did he use what? The claw hold. The Von Erich claw. Yes, he did, actually. All right. I he love those things. Uh, and then, I mean, two months later, April the 8th, 1964, this was right around the time that I was first watching wrestling. I mean, this is when I first started watching it. Gorilla Monsoon, Cowboy Bill Watts, they won the titles uh, from Kaniski and Von Eric, also in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I, I, I forget how many titles or how many tag team titles Gorilla Monsoon had because I don't remember. He didn't hold any major titles, did he? 
like the Intercontinental title or the heavyweight championship, did he? Uh, not not in this. No, no, he he never did. I mean, they called him the all is all Asian Asiatic champion for a long time, <laughs> a fictitious title. Uh, but he never captured that uh, WWF title or WWF title. Okay, six months later, there we go, another six. Six months later, Dan and Bill Miller won the titles August 7th, 1965, also Washington, D.C. Well, if you want to go to a card, you want to go to D.C. because that seems like the place where all the tag team titles are being changed. It's TV, man. TV tapings. And then six months after that, a title change took place at the Mecca at Madison Square Garden, February 21st, 1966. Antonio Pugliese, Bruno Sammartino's cousin, and Johnny Valentine, they won the titles from the Miller brothers. Interesting, interesting. And then I go another six months. So, hey, it's six months down the road. What are we going to do? We're going to change the titles again. This one, Baron Miguel Cicluna and Smasher Sloan, two guys that we've known about wrestling uh, at the Garden, win the titles on September 26, 1966 in Washington, D.C. I saw that match on TV. Really? Yes, and I remember it vividly because um, when Pogliese and Valentine, they had the titles, uh, they were beloved, and Johnny Valentine, during that match, and it was against Baron Mikel Cicluna and Smasher Sloan, Valentine turned on Pogliese to start a feud between them, and that was incredible that was the first heel turn that i ever saw as a kid i was uh, was 1966 so i'm i'm only nine years old uh, watching wrestling in my basement on long island and uh, that's when i discovered uh, you know i watched it in 64 somewhat but 65 i don't think i watched it all and then 66 i found it because wrestling used to disappear on tv and it was like what happened to it it's not here no more yeah they switched times they switched channels and when i finally found it and uh Pliese and valentine were the tag team champions and i remember i was like i was devastated i was shocked i was like how can he turn on this guy and then lo and behold 10 weeks later Antonio Pugliese teams up. And here's another story. This is another great story because I watched this too. It was on December the 8th in Washington, D.C. A new Greek wrestler that they had been talking about named Spiros Arion makes his debut on that television taping and he wins handily in a singles match. The tag team titles are up for grabs. And it's Antonio Pugliese teaming up with Miguel Perez against Sloan and Cicluna. Perez gets hurt. In the uh, first fall, what are they going to do? Here comes Spiros Arion walking down the aisle. I will take Miguel Perez's place. First time he's together. First night in America competing. Wins the tag team titles from uh, Cicluna and Sloan. And for me, Spiros Arion immediately became one of my favorite wrestlers. And to this day, still is. Also in that top 10, I would guess, uh, for me. And Pogliese was always one of my favorites as well. Something happened kind of crazy. June 30th, 1967, Pogliese gave away half his title. What, what was that about? Uh, it could have been uh, Arion uh, going back to Greece or leaving the territory where something happened. Or he, I, I don't really know for sure. He might have got hurt. And uh, then uh, instead of relinquishing it, uh, uh, the title was handed off. Pogliese gave it to a guy that most people know the golden boy on Arnie Scullin. 
It sounds it sounds crazy that you give away your title like that, but then it was, so who was who was the tag team champions at that time then? Pugliese and Arion were the champions. You know, if Arion's leaving, Pugliese still has a title. He gives it to a new partner named Arnie Scullin. Okay, that lasted not long at all because that on July the tenth, nineteen sixty-seven, in Atlantic City, New Jersey, the Sicilians Tony Altamori and Captain Lou Albano win the titles from Arnie Scullin and Pugliese. Okay, I'm thinking like somebody got hurt here. I'm thinking something happened. um, It's only a month. Yeah, that's right. Everything I said is kind of like, look what happens with the next title change. Yeah. And that's when the titles disappear, right? Yeah, so what we're looking at right now is Arnie Skolin takes half the title on June 30th, 1967, and within 20 days, the Sicilians win the title. They win the title on July 10th, but by July 24th, they lose the title 14 days later to Bruno San Martino and Spiro Arian win those titles. So in that month, just about a month time period, that title jumps all around. Yeah, so probably what happened uh, looking at it now was that maybe Arian had gotten injured or had a uh, minor injury and then the title goes to Skolin. Sicilians win it and then uh, Arian comes back. He teams with San Martino. And they win the tag team titles, uh, but then you know, then something else happens. For some reason, they abandon, they retire these titles, which we don't understand why. You know, it's something about Bruno carrying two titles. Never, never confirmed any of this. More like the titles went away. Then it went away for three years and eleven months. You got rid of the tag team titles for three years, eleven months, and only after another fictional tag team tournament. I think this was in Brazil. Was that correct, John? Do you remember this? Was it in Brazil? It was in Brazil. Fictional, of course. Crazy Luke Graham and Tarzan Tyler. June 3rd, 1971, we talked about this show. They had the title, and they came back to the WWF with it. So I don't know why it goes away. I don't know what happened. What They they couldn't find any value in the tag team titles, or they couldn't find anybody who wants to hold the tag team titles. But that's how crazy it was back then. Yeah, there was uh, things that you can't understand even to this day. And, uh, you know, Graham and Tyler, they held that title, and they lost it December 6th. 71 where i was at that show that was one of my first shows and um and that was uh, carl gotch and renee goulet winning the titles right in the middle of the ring at madison square garden on december 6th 71 what i like about that story john is you actually saw you remember your first title change the first time you're alive seeing a title change that was the first title change I saw yeah, yeah, in person. In person, yeah. I think that's very cool. And about eight weeks later, King Curtis and Baron Miguel Cicluna, Mikel, I'm sorry, <laughs> I always say it wrong, Baron Miguel Cicluna. We'll get that mail again. I know. Baron Miguel Cicluna in Philadelphia won the tag team titles on February 1st, 1972. And today on the card, the tag team titles change yet again. So it, it was a little long list, but that's amazing how every they didn't know what they were doing with it. When you have something that you know is good or you think is good and you don't know how to work it, it doesn't become good. Having a tag team title is one of those lower titles that you can send out to places like the smaller arenas saying there's a tag team title, just like the Intercontinental title, where you can take the WWF Heavyweight Championship and only bring that to the major cities like Madison Square Garden or the Boston Garden or Philadelphia. You can bring those around there and you'll have something for the lower or secondary or thirdary cards. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good point, Tim. I mean, um, back then it 
still meant something, though. I mean, even though it was not consistent at points, but those tag team titles and the heavyweight title, before they even brought in the Intercontinental title and the United States title, those two titles were very, very important. Those were valued, and uh, championship belts today, championship titles don't mean as much for sure. But it, uh, we're going to talk about you know who won the titles that night on May 22nd, 1972, and it was, uh, it was a very uh, explosive uh, situation. I was there. The place went nuts. Uh, so uh, we'll get into all of that as we cover this show at the Garden on May 22nd, 72. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, let's get into the show. Um, tickets. Where'd you get your tickets from? Same place, and where'd you sit? Probably uh, Ticketron uh, sat in ringside this time. I went back downstairs. Uh, I believe I got a new Instamatic camera that I wanted to try out, and uh, I got some seats. I think they were around seventh row, anywhere between seven and eighth row. And I remember uh, sitting uh, adjacent to the ring post, which was not, I used to like to sit in the middle, but this time I was adjacent to the ring post on the right side, which really comes into play during one of the matches where I got uh, a spectacular shot that leads to that shot being the first shot I ever had published in a national wrestling magazine. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Okay, Madison Square Garden, May 22nd, 1972. Attendance, 19,367. That's about 2,000, almost 3,000 empty seats in the building. Not the greatest, but, you know, not the worst. So you're doing okay. You're not getting the numbers you used to get. But, you know, they're, they're average. They're, they're decent numbers you're getting. Yeah, once you, you know, you get to 75 or 80% capacity, that's, that's a success. All right, match number one, Tony Contillis defeated the Blue Demon by disqualification, 10 minutes, 24 seconds. And it's kind of ironic in the uh, program that night, he's listed as the Black Demon because the Black Demon and the Blue Demon are actually the same people. Uh, I think uh, when we're talking to uh, talking to Richie about it, he said maybe it was the color of his boots were a little bit different. So they called him the Blue Demon from inside the ring. And it was actually the B- Black Demon who really was uh, Tony Nero. He maybe he had a blue mask and he had to wash the other mask. Maybe it, things, some, maybe it was in the laundry. Remember in the laundry? Yeah, Where but it wasn't the even laundry. a mask anyway. It was an open oh. face mask. Yeah. Because they couldn't wear a mask. True. True. Second match, we'll leave that one alone. After 10 minutes, you get people in the seats. The second match, this is very surprising to me. Second match, Professor Toro Tanaka defeated Manuel Soto in one minute, seven seconds. Why do you do this kind of match? The only reasoning that I can think of, and I was there, was that Soto might have gotten hurt early on. Something might have happened where they had to end it. Because a minute seven with Soto, who was a solid B level performer for them and Tanaka was always kind of a perennial main eventer or you know a secondary guy I'm sure that Tanaka was going to be put over anyway but to be put over in a minute seven especially after he didn't have a title match coming up it really didn't make sense uh it was short and so that's the only thing 50 years later that I can think of is that Soto had gotten hurt 
in the very opening. They had to go to the finish really quickly. Yeah, and and, and Tanaka just came off his title shot against Pedro a few months ago. So right. he it was didn't on, make sense. He was on his downward slide, and you know, really good evaluation because Mario Soto is he's always there. So why would you put your guy who's going downhill over somebody who's going to be there every week? Doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah Manuel Soto was uh, somebody that performed at the Garden all the time, and he was on TV a lot, and the fans loved him. He never really got elevated up to a, a main event status, but uh, he was one of those reliable guys that the fans really gravitated to and really liked, and he was good friends with uh, Morales. Match number three, Don Curtis defeated Smasher Sloan in 17 minutes, 20 seconds. That is a long match. Maybe they had to make up for lost time because of the match before, which was only a minute seven, so they gave them 17 minutes and 20 seconds. And here you have two guys who were kind of over the hill. I mean, these are old-timers. Sloan and Curtis were old-timers. They had been around for a long time, and uh, this wound up being uh, Sloan's last garden appearance and his third loss in a row, uh, losing to Bruno, Sonny King, and now Don Curtis. And also a former tag team champion, as we learned today. Yes, with Baron Mikel. Mikel, Mikel Cicluna. I'll get it. I'll get it. I'll get it one of these days. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> I'm dying over here. Okay. Uh, match number four Eddie Graham defeated Jimmy Valiant in 10 minutes, 45 seconds. Yeah. I mean, uh, Eddie Graham's uh, first appearance at the Garden was on July 12, 1958, uh, teaming with his brother, Dr. Jerry, and he lost to Antonio Arraca and Miguel Perez. And this match was um, a little surprising to see Jimmy Valiant still hanging around, but Eddie Graham was also somebody that uh, might have been in for some meetings because he ran the Florida Territory. So uh, I guess he came up there and uh, they gave him a shot to go into the ring. And Graham had made a few of those sporadic appearances at the Garden. You know, let's talk about that for a second. Um, I always enjoyed that when I'd be at a show and they bring in somebody that you don't get to see a lot. And the WWWF used to do that a lot at the Garden, bringing in names that you knew from the magazines but that you don't get to see on TV and you're not going to see them again but it's a nice little oh my god look who it is. Yeah Vince McMahon Sr. did that a lot. I mean he uh, he really had uh, tight relationships with the other territories I mean, there were working agreements where you would send a guy to this territory or that territory. And uh, he uh, had a special uh, close working relationship with Eddie Graham at the time. And Eddie used to send people up from Florida all the time and you know, back and yeah. forth. Uh, that was uh, kind of like their minor leagues, you know, and it's, it's great for somebody working in Florida to say, hey, I'm going to, you know, send you up to New York for a little while. Well, here's another thing. I mean, you know, when Bobby Backlund was going to be crowned the world champion, uh, Vince McMahon Sr. wanted to get away from the ethnic champions. He wanted to get away because you, know, you had Morales, you had Bruno, you had Antonino Rocca, all ethnic people. Superstar Billy Graham was what they would call transitional champion. When McMahon started looking around for like an All-American, uh, Eddie Graham suggested and pushed Bobby Backlund. It was uh, Bobby Backlund uh, who was pushed by Graham, and McMahon uh, decided to put the strap on him. And, you know, when Billy Graham won the title in April of 77, he already knew the date he was going to lose it to Backlund. Uh, and Backlund was a great technical wrestler, but he never really had that personality. He didn't have that charisma. Uh, but he still was a champion for a long time. But you could you could you go back to Eddie Graham, and Eddie Graham was one of the guys that uh, introduced Backlund to uh, Vince Senior. It was unusual. I, I see what uh, Vince Senior was trying to do, get away from things, but also the the personality and the love for Pedro or the love of Bruno. You know, those are big names that for all these years. 
Backlund was loved, but like, I don't know, it just, you know, you don't want to say it didn't click, but like for, for being a champion that long, he was very good in the ring, but like he wasn't a very good talker. He, he got excited a lot. It just didn't, it was a different style. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it was yeah a I mean, style. when, when Backlund uh, uh, had the title and then when Billy Graham came back and uh, had another series of matches with Backlund and he broke the belt and Backlund was crying on, on camera because Billy, you know, smashed the belt and then Backlund shaved his head. And I mean, it was just, it, it was just, uh, you know, he, he, he did draw well. Uh, he was uh, uh, liked by a lot of people, loved by a lot of people, but he never had that that intense fandom that Morales had with his fan base and Bruno had with his fan base. I, I think the difference is every time you brought in somebody to face Bruno or Pedro, you always got on the side of Pedro and Bruno. It really depended on who was versing Backlund if you were excited or not about it. If that makes sense, you mm-hmm. could you. I'd be excited about anybody watching Bruno because you here to see Bruno. But with Backlund, I think it really the best. His best stuff, I think, was against uh, Jimmy Snuka. Yeah, I mean that was a time period for me, Tim, that um, I wasn't watching anymore. I mean, I really stopped watching literally in like seventy mid seventy eight. 79 uh when i got out of college i graduated with my bachelor's degree in may of 79 and i wasn't watching wrestling anymore and it wasn't until the rock and wrestling connection happened in uh 84 that i i went back and started watching again so i had a a time period that i wasn't watching wwf and i was living in the south too so i was more i was i was going to nwa shows and really you know george napolitano uh asked me to shoot this match or that match at the Charlotte Coliseum or in Greensboro where I'd go shoot some matches but I wasn't watching WWF at all then you know those are stories for later on because I would love to hear the difference in your mind between you know the NWA and the WWF it must have been amazing yeah uh it was uh, a rougher style a more brawling style i mean you had the brick flares and you had the ricky steamboats and the dusty roads and you had valentine piper you had so many in the mid-atlantic championship wrestling was kind of was the territory it was cool i mean it was really good stuff i didn't go to every show uh, but i went to select shows and um and i shot ringside and would send pictures up to george back then I can't wait to hear those stories coming up. Let's go back to the match of tonight. Uh, match number five, Ernie Ladd defeated Rene Goulet in 12 minutes, five seconds. Yeah, I mean, Ernie Cat Ladd uh, with the thumb, uh, working his way up to a title shot, I guess, right? Um, uh, beating Rene Goulet, who was the uh, former tag team champion for the WWF, and uh, 12 minutes, it was a good victory for Ernie the Cat. Okay, now this is the match I was really wanted to talk to you about because this is match number six match number seven is a tag team title match but match number six is a very unusual match because one of the participants in the tag team title match is in match number six which i was just like blown away it is chief jay strongbow defeated captain lou albano in three minutes 15 seconds jay strongbow has is going up for a title in the next match what happened here john why did this even come about well, uh, Gorilla Monsoon was slated to go against Albano, and it was based on a, a feud and even what would have happened at the Garden with the blood and King Curtis. And so, I mean, it was a grudge match booked, and Monsoon couldn't get there. So they had to fulfill that slot because people wanted to see Captain Lou Albano get his ass kicked. So uh, the logical choice, I guess, because he was also feuding heavily with Strongbow, and Strombo came in to substitute for uh, Monsoon, 
and uh, just in three minutes and change, beat Albano senseless and bloodied him up. I mean, Albano did a blade job, which is going to go down in history. Uh, one of the uh, one of the bloodiest uh, uh, blade jobs I ever saw, and Albano was always famous for that. But here's where, uh, where you know, me sitting at ringside with that new Instamatic camera comes into play, and especially that I was on the aisle on the right side, uh, adjacent to the ring post. I saw Albano leaving the ring, and security guards were, uh, a couple of security guards were with him, and I ran up to the ring. There was no barriers at the time, and I was probably six feet in front of Albano, and he's bloody and he's looking right at me and I snapped a picture and it to this day was one of the all-time favorite photographs I've ever taken and I have it and uh, you know when I got it developed uh, I made some copies of it because I just was like I'm gonna make some copies of this you know and I took some to the garden on the, ne the very next show and lo and behold uh, the entrance to the dressing room was on that right side uh, and when I got there, I used to get there and, and as soon as the gates opened, I'd go in there and just kind of sit there. And, and I saw Albano smoking his little cigar outside the dressing room entrance. And I had the photograph with me. So I ran up to him and I was like, uh, you know, Mr. Albano, look, I took this shot of you, uh, last month against Strongbow. And he goes, Oh, that, look at that. Look at that. And he signed the picture for me and I gave him a copy of it. And, uh, and then they used to have this uh, this photo uh, contest in Wrestling Review Magazine, and it was called the Fans Candid Corner. And you'd send in uh, you'd send in the picture, and then if they accepted it, you'd get two dollars if they put it in the magazine, or if it was the photo of the month, you get the grand prize of twenty five. Well, that's photo of the year was twenty five dollars, uh, but um, they published that picture of uh, the bloody Captain Lou Albano, and it came out uh, in November 1972 issue of Wrestling Review Magazine with Bruno Sammartino on the cover. Uh, but that was the very first photograph I ever had published in a wrestling magazine. And I have the magazine here in front of me. I have the photograph in front of me. And we'll be putting that up up for patrons as well. That's what I was waiting to hear. That's what I was waiting to hear. That new folder for the Patreons per episode will be throwing in things all the time. And I've been looking forward to this for so long because this is the first photo you've ever gotten published. This is what, you know, the, you got bitten by that photo bug. Yeah, it was like the camera and it had a built-in flash because normally on the Instamatic cameras, you'd have to put a flash cube on top and there was only four pictures you could take before you have to take the flash cube off and uh, fans used to throw those flash cubes in the ring. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was kind of this cool camera with a built-in flash and I'm like, oh, excited about it. And uh, and that night, you know, I, I, I just ran up to Albano, bloody as he was, and I was able to get that picture, which kind of like, for me, was the beginning of it all when it comes to having photographs published in the wrestling magazines. And I was, darn, I was uh, 15 years old. Wow. Also, let's let's explain to the youngsters out there that don't understand, even if you have a built-in flash, it still probably took you between 10 and 30 seconds for that flash to be ready to shoot again, correct? Right. It, it, it had a little orange light on top of it that you couldn't, it wouldn't go off until that orange light went on. 
And uh, yeah, I was fortunate that the, the camera was fully charged. And then I took the picture because then you'd have to wait. I mean, you couldn't just rattle off picture after picture. No, that ain't going to happen. And it wasn't until I got my first uh, 35 millimeter camera where you could adjust the F stops and, you know, use the black and white film. And, and you, you know, but the flash, even even the electronic flashes for 35 millimeter, it would take sometimes it would take seconds for this thing. And and and, you know. For me, I was snapping away. I mean, um, but that, yeah, that's a good memory. That's a good point to bring up. And also, another another one, you only had so many pictures. What was it? I think tw- right. 24 or even 36. Yeah, I know I had 12. Uh, 12. For the Instamatic, there was 12, uh, 24, and, uh, and I think 36 was when you got up to the 35 millimeter. But uh, for Instamatic, I remember 12 and 24. Uh, exposures so you're not taking the pictures you know are not going to show up with like you, if you see a battle coming towards you you're waiting what was that old saying wait until you see the whites of his eyes that's what you had to do Pretty with this because you wanted to do at least one good shot and then if you can take other ones great after but you want to know make sure that you take one shot get that yeah. flash off and have them somewhere in the frame but also at that time i discovered um that the entrance where the wrestlers came in outside Madison Square Garden was a great place to get pictures. So I would take my camera out there and, you know, uh, Terry Funk and King Curtis and Captain Lou and Fabulous Mula and uh, the spoiler. And I mean, the fans would congregate outside the, um, uh, the entrance where the employees and the wrestlers came in. And we'd get there really early, and then people would start showing up. And as soon as the gates opened, then you had to run inside to get your seat. Uh, but those were uh, those were photographs that um, you would just shoot when these wrestlers were coming into the uh, the dressing room area. And we have more and more coming up. If you want to see them, you got to go to patreon.com slash John and Rizzi. You will not be disappointed. They're awesome. Yeah, it's uh, going to be exciting to be able to share this stuff. I'm so excited about this. My favorite new thing. But here, let's go to match number seven, Chief J. Strongbow. Now, why was that first match so important? Well, uh, Chief J. Strongbow beat Captain Lowell Bound. He became all bloody. John took the picture, and John mm-hmm. blinded Captain Lou, and he couldn't continue anymore, could he, John? So he had to go in the back. <laughs> yeah, right. So this is your fault. Uh, actually, Strongbow had to stay in the ring because his uh, match was coming up for the tag team titles next. And what made it so fa- fantastic while they had to do this because Captain Lou couldn't come out. He was too no. blooded to come out. So this is important with the tag team title change where you saw Chief J. Strongbow and Sonny King defeat the WWWF Tag Team Champions, Baron Miguel Cicluna and King Curtis, to win the titles best out of two out of three falls to Zip. There you go. Uh, new Tag Team Champions. The crowd goes wild. And uh, and you got those belts on uh, Strongbow and Sonny King, which uh, were, were a great uh, tag team at the time. And we'll tell you how many weeks or months they lasted in our next episode. Yes. <laughs> That was the thing at the time. Now, uh, match number eight, the one we were waiting for, WWWF world champion Pedro Morales defends his title against the eighth wonder of the world, Pampero Furpo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you sound like macho. I'm trying. Our guest coming on this show is Mary Freese, who is the daughter of the Wild Bull of the Pampas, 
Pero Furpo, and she's going to join us right now, and I'm really looking forward to this. How you doing, wrestling fans? John Arezzi here, and we have a very special supplement to our episode, Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, covering May 22nd, 1972, 50 years ago. The main event at the Mecca of all arenas was Pedro Morales defending his title against the one and only Pampero Furpo. And for Patreons out there, we have a special video for this. Uh, really, it's a special occasion here for us. We are going to interview Mary Fries. Is that the way you spell your last or pronounce your last name? Yes, Fries, is correct. that the way it is? Yes. Uh, Pampero Furpo's daughter, a special bonus. And uh, Mary has given us so much content uh, that we're going to be putting up for patrons. And uh, so we're going to have a really special chat today. Well, Mary, how are you doing? I'm great, John. It's good to see you. Hi, Tim. Hi, Richie. Nice to see all of you. Yeah, Thanks for having me on the show. For people who are going to be watching this and uh, people who may not know, can you tell them a little bit about who your father was, a historic figure in pro wrestling? Sure. So my father's real name was Juan, J-U-A-N, Juan Kachmanian, and he is of Armenian descent. He was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina in 1930, and he said the sports bug, the wrestling bug got into him at a really young age because his father was an amateur featherweight boxer undefeated and was a contender for the Olympics, but he was kind of a man without a country because he was of Armenian descent, born in Turkey, got displaced during the genocide, ended up in Argentina. And so he was an Olympic hopeful and never really got a chance. And so from there, my dad's dad started promoting local fights in Argentina in boxing. And he used my dad to time the fighters, to get them ready, to time the ring, the rounds in the ring. And so my dad said he was always interested in athletics and was his father's right-hand man in that local boxing promoting. So he grew up in that type of an environment. And when he was 18, he had to do mandatory military service in Argentina in 1948, even during peacetime. And one of his commanding officers saw our last name, Kachmanian, and thought that he was related to a local wrestler and asked my dad, can you get us tickets down to Luna Park, which was the big stadium in Buenos Aires? We want to go to the wrestling match. So my dad didn't want to disappoint his commanding officer. And he went down to the stadium and talked to the promoter and just explained his situation. Can I get a few tickets? And the promoter looked at him and said, have you ever thought about wrestling? I think we could do something with you. And that was, I said, a star was born. That was how he got started. And so when he got discharged from the military, he started working out with the wrestlers and the promoter at Luna Park. He said they stretched him at first and injured him, but he kept going back. And that also won the promoter's approval. And so he wrestled all through Argentina, he said, starting in 1950 when he was 20. And then the promoter said, I hate to lose you, but we, you know, your, your place is to go to America. And so first he wrestled, first he wrestled in South America, went to Chile and Ecuador, Peru, Venezuela, all over South America, went up to Mexico. This was in the 1950s. And then Antonio Naraca, one of his countrymen from Argentina, who's a few years older than he had already gotten popularity and success in the United States. So Rocca kind of gave him an entree into Texas. And then from there, Rocco went to New York and kind of gave a push to my dad, why don't you bring Furpo in? And that's how he got started. So all around the world from a humble beginning in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and he went to 21 different countries across five different continents over a career that spanned 30 years. Wow. A 30-year career is, uh, is, 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 is pretty cool to have a, a, a legacy like that and to travel all over the world. And of course, to have some runs at Madison Square Garden, I mean, which was the mecca of all arenas, uh, to this day, 
Uh, and of course, uh, we're celebrating that 50th anniversary of the Morales match on uh, this show. The Garden was always a special place. Uh, did your dad ever talk about wrestling at the Garden? Uh, and to your recollection, did he bring up the Garden and how special that might have been? He and, did. Uh, he did because his first match at the Garden, Richie, you were saying 1960. And he, again, Rocca gave him an entree there, which he was always very grateful for. He said Rocca was his idol and really helped him out early in his career because my dad... Coming from Argentina, he was multilingual. He spoke Armenian, Spanish. He spoke Portuguese and Italian before he learned English. And so this was his fifth language and it made things difficult. And some people would try to take advantage of that. So he said Raka always treated him fairly and they were countrymen, you know, both from Argentina. So that was a huge thrill for him to go to Madison Square Garden in 1960 and do programs there against Arnold Scoland and different people, Antonina Rocca, Miguel Perez, Bruno San Martino. Uh, it just was, it was a real thrill. So he talked about, that was his dream. He said that he was living in a hotel that he paid for out of his own pocket during that time in New York. And he said just his dream since he was a little boy was to come to America. So not just America, but New York City. He always kept so many pictures. He made scrapbooks. He sent things home to his family. That was his goal when he came here is he said, I'm going to America. I'm going to bring you to. And he was able to do that with his two sisters and his parents. And so I think New York was just, uh, you know, the ultimate, like you make it, you can make it there. You can make it anywhere. So that was really exciting for him. Yeah. And aside from Rocca, I mean, he was really close with Bruno as well. Yes. I mean, they, they developed a friendship. Yes. I think they understood each other. They're both immigrants, they're refugees, mm -hmm. you know, from um, growing up hard like that. Speaking the language, they both spoke Italian. They both had really old school, old world family values, you know, both really close to their mother, their father family men. And he also respected Bruno's clean lifestyle, his work ethic. They got along really, really well. And um, he had a lot of respect for Bruno, both as a wrestler and a person and a performer. Well, well back in the day, Mary, with wrestlers, either you uh, you left your family for long periods of time or you moved from territory to territory. What did your family do? Yeah, it's a good question. You're right, Tim. So my dad was single until he was 39. He met my mom in Milwaukee. He swept her off her feet. She was a wrestling fan. She ran off and joined him in Hawaii and they lived there for a while. In 1969, they got married in 1970 and my older brother, John, was born. And the first five years of John's life, they lived this itinerant lifestyle. They lived in Michigan. They lived in the Carolinas. They lived in Hawaii. They lived in California. They went everywhere. I wasn't born until 75. So I was the youngest of three. My brother, 1970. My sister, Julie, 1973. So I was born in 1975. And at that time, my brother was starting kindergarten. And my mom said, we need to settle someplace. I can't keep pulling him out of school. So my dad chose California. He liked the temperate climate, similar to Argentina. He wanted someplace warm. My mom's from Milwaukee. So he loved Milwaukee. He loved the Midwest, but didn't want to make a, a home there with the different, the cold climate. So he settled in California in 1975. And I you know, I have pretty early memories. He really hung it up in 1981. He did a comeback match in 86. But as far as being on the road, I was really young to remember any of that. But I do remember him going to Hawaii and then going to Japan and going back to Hawaii and he would bring souvenirs. I remember him coming home with lays full of candy and little dolls and things like that. And I remember wrestlers calling the house when I was younger and it would scare me when I would answer the phone. But I was really young. I was six when he retired. So I know it was hard on my mom. I think my mom regretted that she couldn't really establish roots anywhere. And my dad also didn't want her befriending people because 
he said that he didn't want them to get a glimpse into his personal life. And these are people that my mom didn't know. So had they stayed in Milwaukee and she had friends from high school or college, I'm sure he would have been okay with that because they would have respected her privacy. But he said, if we go someplace and you meet people, he said, they can't know about our personal life. They can't see me because it would ruin his business of drawing fans in the arena. You know, he always worked heels. So if they saw him as a family man or home with my mom and brother, it was bad for business. So I know my mom felt isolated. It was hard on her. Wow. Uh, yeah. Good, Tim. No, I was just going to, yeah, that was one of my later questions I was going to ask you, Mary. Your, your dad had such a, an original look to himself in the ring, and I wanted to know what he was like outside the ring, and what was he like when friends, your friends used to come over to the house, if they didn't yeah. at all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was... Um... He had the really wild hair, like the Afro looking hair when he wrestled, but when he was home, he would just take it back and put it in a ponytail. And he was, he was still an imposing figure. He was five foot eight, but he was just so stocky and solid. Everyone thought he was taller and the hair added to that impression too. And he would kind of like, you know, comb his beard down and again, like he put his hair in a bun sometimes. <laughs> you know? So he... Uh, when he was at home, he really just enjoyed the time with his family. I remember that as a little kid, very affectionate, would just very hands-on, like the Armenian culture always. He loved to cook, so would make meals and have his parents over and his two sisters and their families and just really enjoyed time with the family. And by the time I was a teenager, by the time I was like upper elementary school, like I said, he'd hung it up. So at that time he would come when I was in third grade, it was 1983, and he would come to my class for show and tell and he would like the kids would get in a line and he would pretend to body slam them. But when they would ask him questions, like the third graders wouldn't ask, you know, is wrestling fake or anything? But he, when I would say that in middle school, I'd say, well, is it, is, was it fake? Was it real? And he just wouldn't answer. He said, that's a very touchy subject with me. He just wouldn't, he wouldn't answer it. He's like, I, I don't want to talk about it. So he always called that his professional ethic that he didn't talk about the business. He wouldn't dream of doing a shoot interview. He would tell me things. It was funny. He would say things like, well, don't tell anyone, but George Steele was a school teacher. I said, I know dad that's on the internet or he would, um, you know, he'd say different things that were already common knowledge and he thought it was a big secret and don't tell anybody anything. So he, he took a lot of those stories and the secrets to the grave. Unfortunately, I wish he would have talked to me more about it. Well, it was that era too, where, uh, you know, the business was so protected for so many yes. years and even uh, to family members, like you were indicating, I mean, ooh, that was kind of this closed society. And uh, there were very few individuals uh, back then that would disclose anything about the business, even to their own yes. family, as you're testifying to here. Yes. Kind of yeah. Cool. In fact, my mom was so, um, they, they were very loving with each other and affectionate. So when I said she felt isolated, I wouldn't consider it like a controlling or abusive situation. She just felt lonely because she couldn't socialize and things like that. But it, it was, I, there was a picture of my dad where he was allegedly blinded by the sheik throwing a fireball and he had bandages on his eyes. And when I looked closer at it, I saw that the nurses were his, my aunt Rosie, my dad's sister. And then my dad's, <laughs> and I sent that to my mom. I said, look, it's aunt Rosie. And it's Nona, like my dad's mom. And she said, but you're not going to post that anywhere. She said, don't tell anybody. And this was two years ago. She said, don't post that and don't tell people that that was your aunt and your grandmother. Don't, I mean, she still has that into wow. her. Like that's not, and I think she also said it in a way like your dad wouldn't be happy about that if they knew that that was what, and I thought my mom doesn't keep up with wrestling or the wrestling business and she doesn't know what a shoot interview is. I thought it's kind of a different era now than it was, but that was how seriously she took it. She really protected it and helped him keep his image. 
I tell you, uh, aside from the uh, mouthpieces like the Wizard and Eddie Creechman, um, there was also a uh, a person or something that was by his side for many many years, <laughs> and it was someone who didn't speak at all, but uh, who made just as much of an impact sometimes as a manager would. And that was uh, a little friend uh, with a nickname or a name called Chimu. And yes. uh, uh, the, the story is, is that uh, it was a shrunken head uh, of a tribal leader from Ecuador, I believe. And tell us a story about Chimu. How did that happen? And uh, whatever happened to Chimu? I will tell you the story of Chimu. So I myself was fascinated by the scrapbooks that my dad kept. And when I was around 10 or 11, they were on a bookshelf in our living room and I would pull out the scrapbooks and I would look through and he kept a lot of clippings from all over his career. And particularly the Detroit Magazine was called Body Press. And there were a bunch of stories and articles and there were a bunch of pictures where he was holding out this thing and like Pompero Furpo is lonely, uh, Chimu is lonely and Pompero Furpo is waiting, like the next opponent's gonna be this shrunken head. And I'd asked him about it, I said, what was Chimu? And he would not talk to me about it. And I, as I, when I was like 11 or 12 and I'd asked my mom, I said, what is this? Is this real? And she said, well, she said, I don't know. My parents divorced when I was 10, but we, the three of us lived with our mom and my dad got an apartment 15 minutes away. So we still saw him and spent time with him. But I would look at the scrapbook stayed in our house for a while. And then my dad took them, but I would look at the scrapbooks and I'd say, what is this? And my mom said, well, it was this shrunken head that your dad had. And I said, was it real? And she would say, I think it was real. Like even, you know, she didn't even really know. And so I said, well, what happened to it? And she said, I think your dad had it made into jewelry. I haven't seen it in years. And I said, I was thinking, how do you make a shrunken head into jewelry? But I never saw it. And so as a, as an adult, well, my dad actually talked a little bit about it, but I hadn't seen it ever until about six years ago. And so my dad had said, I said, tell me about Chimu. And he said, well, I, that was given to me by a tribal leader in Ecuador and he was of the Incas. And Chimu was the god of good luck in the, of the Incas. And so doing a little research myself, I saw that there were Incas in Peru and Ecuador and some of the tribes there were head shrinkers. And my dad said it was real, it was given to me as a sign of esteem. And I, you know, I wish, again, I wish he would have talked to my dad, went to Ecuador and traveled there before he came to Mexico. And it was like, I didn't know, was the tribesman a wrestling fan? How did he encounter my dad? He said, well, he was, he said he was impressed with my stamina, my endurance, my strength. And he gave this to me as a sign of esteem. So I was always interested in that. And then my brother found Chimu. My dad had a silver suitcase that was packed up like a Halliburton suitcase. And when we were moving my dad out of his apartment into assisted living, uh, when my dad was in his mid eighties, my brother found this silver suitcase and unlocked it. And in there were my dad's wrestling boots, a jacket, like ready to go to a show. He had all packed up. And then my brother um, found Chimu in a velvet bag, which we always knew. I think he was kept in this velvet bag. So my brother found this velvet bag with Chimu in the suitcase ready to go, but he didn't tell me. And so my brother, <laughs> we were standing together and suddenly he put it in his, the pocket of his blue jeans and he pulled it out and he said, look what I found. And he shoved it right in my face. And he said, it's Chimu. And he, he literally <laughs> just stuck it right in my face. And it was, it's kind of terrifying oh, looking. Yeah, it is terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is Chimu. Mike Mooney said it was a macabre oddity. And I said, that was a perfect description. It has hair look on the back. That. Look at and that. it's got some kind of um, something through the mouth there and the lips are sewn shut. And I, yeah. I did a little research too. And it said that 
the uh, the shrunken heads, some were stolen, you know, somewhere I said, no, like my dad, my dad got this. And there was something online about, there's even hair like kind of by the ears here. Um, I know it's really special to my dad. Like he kept that really sacred. He put it, like I said, in this velvet bag and he always kept it really safe. And there was something online about how some of these artifacts are repatriated back to their homeland. And so I have a 15 year old son and a 12 year old daughter and I showed it to them the other day. I said, well, who wants Chimu after I pass away? And they were kind of looking like, not me. And I thought maybe we can send him back to his homeland. There's, he has these ears too, and there's hair on his ears. Um, wow. I know. And then it almost like some people have asked, like, is that a monkey? Is that a person? And um, I, I believe it's a person. It's got hair like a person and it, the lips are protruding like some of the shrunken heads that I see mm -hmm. online from that era. So I wish I wish he would have told me more about it. It's got some kind of like cottonish looking hair. And so my brother, yeah. my brother lives about 15 minutes from me and we uh, we keep Chimu in our velvet bag. And uh, I'm sure people watching probably didn't think that was real. Somebody sent me the other day a picture of Abdullah the butcher and he had a shrunken head. And somebody said, that looks like, um, he said, this is like a bargain basement version of Chimu. Cause you could tell it wasn't real, you know? And I thought right, I wonder yeah. what the fans would have thought if they really knew that was like a real shrunken head, you know? So. Um, yeah, Abdullah's is probably a doll said that he knocked <laughs> off at Toys R Us or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Put it in the oven for a little while or something. We we talked on the show, Mary, once before about this, and we want to put this rumor to bed. Um, is it true your dad didn't want wrestlers to hit him in the stomach? And if so, why? So this is something, again, that I, I rely on people like Lanny Poffo, because he, he and Randy, Randy Savage, uh, Lanny Poffo, Randy Poffo, they met my dad when they were adolescents, like teenagers in Hawaii, because their father, Angelo, worked with my dad in New York. And then later when the boys were young adults, my dad and Angelo worked together in the Detroit territory and they would drive to Ohio and make different towns together. I have a great picture of uh, my dad wrestling Randy and my dad's got him. It looks like kind of like a Boston crab or like a, some kind of surfboard thing. It says Macho Man on Randy's t-shirt. And I said, it's Oh Yeah Senior with Oh Yeah Junior uh, wrestling together. So yeah, I asked Lanny and um, Lanny said that too. He always imitates my dad. He does a great imitation. He goes, whatever you do, do not hit me in my stomach. Cause he always said like ES, like a stomach, like don't hit yes. me there. And so I found in his scrapbook, so I didn't really know either. And I asked my mom, I said, what? You know, why does dad, he had a big scar on his stomach and it wasn't really like dark colored or anything, but if you got up close, you could see it. It was this big scar, probably this long that went all the way up and down the middle of his stomach. And I asked my mom, I said, was that when like Carl Gotts dropped him on his head and anything? She said, no, no, but she didn't want to tell me either. She said, no, I think he had diverticulitis and it led to a perforated intestine. And she said he was in the hospital oh. for a few months in Hawaii. And my dad said, you should have seen the boxes of letters I got, he said, from people in Hawaii. He was a huge baby face in Hawaii. People loved him there. And he said, I got boxes and boxes of letters. And he said he, he really was injured, but they made it storyline, you know, like he was recovering from whatever it was. And so there was even an article in um, one of his scrapbooks and he was giving an, an interview to a newspaper. It was a legitimate newspaper, like the Minneapolis Star Tribune, or it was the LA Times or Detroit Free Press. Like he was giving an interview and he told the interviewer that he was stabbed in Omaha by unruly fans with knives. And so I, yeah, I called Joanne Dusick. I said, guess what I just saw in the scrapbook? I said, my dad said that he was attacked in Omaha. I said, did that happen? Because my mom said it was a perfect. She said, no, that never happened. She said that was just storyline. So even me as my daughter, it would have been simple for him to say, well, 
I had diverticulitis and it led to an intestinal perforation. I had to be opened up, but he was really, really sick because I don't think he addressed his symptoms. It got to the point where it necessitated that huge operation. He said it could have been deadly. And so again, it would have been something simple for him to explain, but he chose not to. And then even as his daughter, 50 years later, I'm asking Joanne Dusick if she knew anything about him getting stabbed in Omaha by unruly fans and ending up in the hospital with this huge scar. So I think that was part of his charm. It's like, did we do we really know all about Pompero Furbo? Like we just, we don't, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, we, we do know one thing. He did coin a famous phrase that uh, the aforementioned Randy Savage uh, used a lot, and uh, I'm not going to uh, make a gimmick divorce. <laughs> Come on, do I, it. Timmy, you you know? do a good job. He, 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 do it, John. Do? Yeah. Yeah, do it. It do was kind of like the, oh, yeah. Was, I mean, that's how we started. That was but fantastic. I do. Well, I, I want to ask yeah. you about the, the oh, yeah, Mary, because, uh, you know, we talked about Randy Savage, who's a second-generation wrestler, and he, he conducted his wrestling business very old-school style. Did he ever talk to or call your dad and say, hey, can I use your phrase? You know, not to my knowledge, but Lanny told me that when my dad, when Randy thought about doing that, he patterned his interviews after my dad. And Lanny's talked about that in the Randy Savage DVD that the WWE put out. Randy's, Lanny said that Randy struggled with his interviews, which is ironic because he became known for what a great interview he was. But Lanny's idea was, well, why don't you pattern yourself off somebody who was wild if you're going to call yourself savage? And so Randy patterned himself after my dad and King Curtis Iakea, who were two of the big stars in Hawaii when the boys were there and they were yeah. younger. And so Lanny said, yeah, he said when Randy was thinking about doing that, he said, Randy asked me, do you think we should call Furpo and ask him if it's okay? And so I don't know that he ever did, but Lanny mm-hmm. said that he told Randy, you're putting your own spin on it and you're making it your own. And he said, people just, um, you know, they borrow, they just borrow things and kind of give it their own, twist on things. So I don't think my dad was ever resentful of it or anything. I think he understood. He didn't want to be somebody who was kind of a hanger on, like when he was done, he was done. And now it's the next generation. And he never, he watched any modern wrestling. He was always amazed by it. He said, I can't believe what they're doing. And he was more, he was never critical of it. He just was, he would wince at things like, oh, like they shouldn't be doing that, like that kind of thing. But he was never uh, denigrating of the athletes of today, he was more impressed by how much the wrestling had evolved, and it just it was it was such a different animal. So I think that Randy did that with his blessing, and I think if he didn't have his blessing, my dad would have made that known, and he didn't. Great yeah. story, and a yeah. lot of great stories today. And anything else, guys, from you? Or I mean, this has been such a pleasure for us. Yeah, well, Mary, you know, if people want to follow you on uh, social media, where can they find you? Oh, thanks, Tim. So I have one account. I only have one social media account and I don't have any personal accounts. My social media account is my Pompero Furpo Twitter and it's P as in Pompero and then it's Furpo, F-I-R-P-O. It's P Furpo numeral one on Twitter. And I posted in the media section, I went through and digitalized all of the five dozen scrapbooks he kept. And there's original cards and fight cards and photos and things from the 1950s all the way up through 1981, including the my dad's appearances at Boston Garden against Pedro, Madison Square Garden against Pedro, different posters with um, Andre the Giant, the other eighth wonder of the world. Pat, I don't know if I'm saying Pat's last name right, Pat LaProd or Pat LaPrade. When he wrote the book for Andre the Giant, he mm-hmm. 
sent me an email and he said, was, said, do you know the story of the eighth wonder of the world? Because my dad, I posted this on Twitter. There was a pennant from Detroit where it's a big picture of my dad and it says the eighth wonder of the world on it. And I said, I wish I would have known, but you know how it, it passed from him to Andre because I, he was billed as that before Andre was billed at that and they wrestled together. They actually tagged together in the Detroit territory. I have posters that I posted. It says, um, you know, Furpo and Andre the Giant against maybe like the Sheik and Bulldog Don Kent or some tag team, tech, you know, the Sheik and Killer Brooks, something like that. So I have that Pompero Furpo Twitter account. And then I also, the collar and elbow after my dad passed did a t-shirt of my dad. And it says, who still remembers Pompero Furpo, which is the, line from the Jim Cornette podcast. And that's still, I believe it's still available. It was on the collar and elbow website, but when I Googled it just now, it looks like it's still available in, in the UK. So, um, and we don't get proceeds from the t-shirt. We wanted that to go to the Cauliflower Alley Club. So that was something my dad was really um, passionate about was helping, helping other people and giving to charity. Yeah. And that's a great organization as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, he was, there was a, not very many like him. He was in a league of league of his own. Yeah. And uh, yes. this has been uh, this has been a pleasure, and I really appreciate yes. your time, Mary, very much. Um, it's great to see you, and uh, thank you, and to relive these stories. Fifty years ago, Madison Square Garden, May twenty second, nineteen seventy two, yeah. main event: Pedro Morales against Pampero Furpo. It was a night that I'll never forget for sure. I was there, and it was wow. uh, it was exciting. Should we um, should we tell Mary if her dad won her lots or should she have to listen to the podcast? <laughs> well, um, I had wish at the time her dad would have won that match. <laughs> My dad, he loved Pedro. He absolutely loved him. He always said Pedro was such a good kid. And he always said that. He just absolutely loved him. I think yeah, um, never a bad word about Pedro either. He's no, just a, no. A guy that really still hasn't gotten the accolades and the respect yeah. that he deserves for being a champion for as many years as he was and for the fan base that he electrified in New York. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's big Mac. Big Mac has left the building. Big Mac has left the building. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, John and Richie and Tim. And uh, thank you for keeping the stories alive. It's, it's such a pleasure, oh, pleasure to, I love my dad. I miss my dad. And it's uh, such a pleasure to talk about him with people who are interested. So thank you also for the viewers and listeners and, um, uh, we love you and appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Mary, thanks for the great stories. Thank you so much, Mary. Uh, it was it was a pleasure to have her on the show. It's so, it's so interesting to find out this stuff. I, I didn't, you know, I heard about, we talked about in the past that he was a family man, but it really amazed me how much he kept kayfabe with his family during his career. Yeah, that's was uh, that was what it was like back then. And uh, Furpo was certainly kayfabe. And, and as Mary says, I mean, she wishes her dad was more open at the time with her but it was such a great uh, opportunity to speak to her and and all of the memorabilia that she has collected from her dad and still has including chimu uh it was just kind of really special to be able to bring her on to celebrate the 50th anniversary of her dad being in the main event at madison square garden against pedro morales and everything we were talking about with Mary, Chimu, and the pictures and everything are going to be on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Donna Rizzi. That's right. I mean, you can see it there. And uh, Chimu, of course, the tribal <laughs> the tribal leader from Ecuador, whose uh, head was apparently uh, cut off 
and uh <laughs> furpo got it but uh yeah all of this stuff is going to be uh, available for patrons to see patreon.com slash john Arezzi. and uh what else can we say about it it's like if you haven't joined and you haven't become part of the community yet go to patreon.com slash john Arezzi because there's always wonderful historic stuff being put up there for everybody Absolutely. And uh, again, about besides Patreon, if you'd like to help the show, what we love if you can do, follow us on social media, follow John on social media. Where can they find you, John? Uh, everywhere. Basically, uh, Twitter's at John Arezzi, Instagram's at John Arezzi. We have uh, uh, a really very cool site on Facebook. It's John Arezzi's Matt Memories. There's a public group there. A lot of participation. We have about 2,000 people on there right now. And then we have a private group for uh, for more of uh, people from uh, fans that are posting uh, stuff, uh, old videos, and from all territories and from all eras of wrestling. And that's the private group on uh, Facebook. And we also have a YouTube channel, which is basically youtube.com slash pro wrestling spotlight. And if you like the podcast, which we hope you did, please leave a review, leave a comment. It really does help. Five stars, five-star review, and tell a friend because this is how it grows. This is how community grows. This is how other people get involved. This is how we get other guests on the show, and we'll get to bring the show to you every month. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's just really share it. You know, you can share links, but tell people about it. As Tim said, go to Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts, give it a five-star review. People love it. The people that are listening to this show love it. They wait for it every month. And there's a lot of uh, old timers out there that are listening to this that reminisce of those days. And they want to know more about those early days at the Garden, uh, at least during the time period where they were alive. Uh, So we give that to them each and every episode here at Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden. And you know what's so funny? We get emails all the time that we actually get on the phone with people and help them realize that maybe they're following us on Facebook, they hear about the show, and they say, well, I don't listen to podcasts, and we have helped a few people. So those people welcome now that we got on the phone with and we helped you find out how to download uh, uh, your uh, podcast on your cell phone or on your computer. So we really do appreciate that. John, how would you rate uh, this card? Uh, out of all the shows I had gone to up to this point since August of 71 through May of uh, 72, uh, this was one of my favorite shows up to that point. And I think it was just because of that photograph I took of Albano, which I'll never, ever forget, and seeing uh, Furpo in the main event, uh, and then the tag team title change. Those were things that you don't forget. I mean, a lot of the matches, like the ones we talked about in the early, you don't remember that much about you know, uh, you know, some of the, some of those matches that were throwaways, but it was and I was back at ringside uh, from the uh, first level. Uh, so that was kind of special for me and uh, more to come. I mean, but that was kind of a very, very memorable show for me. May 22nd, 1972, at the Mecca. And Mary made it memorable for me because talking to her Absolutely. and listening to her talk about her dad, the love, you know, and it's that why I say it's so weirdly, because a lot of these wrestlers, they, they spend so much time on the road. It affects their family, you know, when dad's away for long periods of time. And it really seemed like Furpo really cared about his family and he, he left the profession he loved so much to be with his family. Yes, that's very, very true. 
And our next show is a house show July 1st. No show in June. We are working on a, maybe a special show somewhere uh, mid-June, so you got to prepare for that. But July 1st, Pedro Morales defends his title against George the Animal Steel, and ladies wrestling makes its first appearance at Madison Square Garden. Yes, uh, that's going to be another big one. I remember that one as well because that was Moolah coming in, ladies wrestling uh, at Madison Square Garden. And I remember being outside of that Madison Square Garden when she showed up in a taxi cab to walk in for the first time. Did you get a picture? I did. Well, we'll have to talk about that next month when we talk about this. Oh, once again, let's send a shout out to Scott Teal. His book, Wrestling at the Garden, is our Bible. That's correct. And once again, thank you to Richie Garcia for doing all the research on this uh, on this show. And especially that tag team title history was really, really cool to go over. And Mary, we can't forget Mary. That's right. And thank you, Mary Freeze, the daughter of... Oh, yeah! Pampero Furpo. Fantastic. Anything else, John? No, that's about it, Tim. Thank you so much. It's always great to do this show with you. Same here. For John and Rizzi, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time. <laughs>